Nuclear gaslighting. Part of the problem those who oppose nuclear have had to deal with is convincing the public, including reporters, that radiation from nuclear sources poses a genuine threat to human life and health. The proof is out there, but it's consistently ignored or distorted by pro-nuclear interests so they can keep getting away with what they get away with, which is more, more, more weapons, reactors, waste. But then a former Vietnam War correspondent who spent more than 10 years researching the impact of nuclear testing on the South Pacific Islands discovers what appears to be the intentional omissions of radiation facts from virtually all articles on the bomb published by our newspaper of record, the New York Times. And among the hidden impacts of radiation she discovers from this test, she learns and tells you... One of the most devastating pieces of information later on was the British Medical Journal how the deaths of newborn babies and stillborn, the death rate had been going down, down, down until the 50s when you had much better care and sanitation for the newborn. And then with the nuclear testing, there's a hump up, more newborn deaths. And this was a factor that the women in the Pacific Islands were saying, but nobody was paying attention to them. And there's so much more. So when Beverly Deep Kiever, who wrote the landmark book News Zero, The New York Times and the Bomb, tells you what she learned and puts it in the context of what we have been led not to learn, you realize how the powers that be would much rather none of us realizes that the whole world, every last one of us, has been forced into that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halady. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a powerful look at the history of how we have all been manipulated away from understanding the true dangers of nuclear radiation and the bomb. I talk at length with Beverly Deep Kiever, author of the book News Zero, The New York Times and the Bomb. I believe it is no exaggeration to say that this is one of the most important books you can ever read on how the world has been gaslit into thinking that radiation is not a danger. So everything nuclear is A-OK. We will also have nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than was used as the basis for the Build Back Better bill. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 9, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Some good international news. 
Greenland is preparing legislation to ban uranium exploration and mining. The country's newly formed government is proposing to ban mining at uranium mines and cease development of the Kvianfjeld mine. If extracted, the project's uranium reserves are believed to adversely affect the country's environment. The new bill would also include the option to ban the exploration of other radioactive minerals, such as thorium. There's a film on this by Lise Odogina and Joshua Portway called Connorsuit Kvanfjeld. We will have a link up to the film and also the nuclear hot seat interview with Lisa Otogina from the International Uranium Film Festival. That will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 542. And Norway's largest pension fund said on Thursday, November 4th, that it has divested from 14 companies involved in producing nuclear missiles and other weapons. Oslo-based KLP, which manages more than $35.4 billion in assets, said it made the decision after reviewing companies that may violate its guidelines on weapons. KLP's head of responsible investments, Kiran Aziz, said, Companies do not need to produce the actual weapon components themselves. It is sufficient that they contribute in other ways, and said that these weapons, by their nature, violate fundamental humanitarian principles. Don't bank on the bomb strikes again. In the U.S., tribes, indigenous groups, conservation organizations file a petition to strengthen federal mining rules, and groups fire back at the Fed's move to dismiss plutonium pit lawsuit. We'll have details on both of these stories on next week's program. Here's this week's featured interview. You know how sometimes you read a book and it changes your worldview, even your life? For me, that's the book News Zero, The New York Times and the Bomb. Since reading it about seven years ago, not a day has passed without it being part of my life, the inspiration for and cornerstone source for a play that I have been writing. Thus, I am honored and thrilled to introduce you to both the book and the woman who wrote it. Beverly Deep Kiever is an American journalist, Vietnam War correspondent, author, and professor emerita of journalism and communications at the University of Hawaii after 29 years of researching and teaching there. What she reveals to us from 10 years of extensive research into the New York Times and the bomb at the dawn of the atomic age reveals the source of so many of the problems we face today in warning people about nuclear radiation dangers and why nuclear must never be considered green energy. This is one of the most important and influential books I've ever read, and that's why I was delighted to speak with Beverly Deep Kiever on Thursday, November 4, 2021. Beverly Deep Kiever, it is such an honor to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat as my guest this week. I am delighted to be here, and thank you for your interest in this continually crucial topic. Let's start out with a little bit about you so people can understand who they are hearing from. You were a reporter and did some very hardcore work. What is your background as a reporter? I was hired at the University of Hawaii to teach journalism based on my professional credentials, which were a master's degree from Columbia University School of Journalism and seven years of reporting in the Vietnam War. 
but I did not have a doctorate, a PhD, the gold standard for academia. And without that, I realized, and my department underscored, you're just a second-class citizen with no future. So I did the study to do a PhD, but you have to do a dissertation. And so the crunch was my dissertation. I wanted to do something on journalism. I wanted to do it on the Pacific. I was in Hawaii. And what bigger topic than the nuclear testing? Did you do any reporting on nuclear issues while you were reporting from Vietnam? No, no, I didn't. As a matter of fact, I was stunned to find out much, much later that General Westmoreland had actually advocated using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. But of course, that didn't go anywhere. Thank goodness, we'd have been vaporized for sure. But no, I hadn't followed the nuclear issue very much at all because a lot of this happened while I was just in college and journalism school. But, you know, you didn't pay that much attention. You didn't know that much about it. That was basically the story. The American public didn't know very much about what was going on in the Pacific with the nuclear testing. So anyhow, this dissertation is supposed to take seven years or you'll get kicked out, but I got extensions. It took me 10 years that I finally, finally did it. Now, I could only do it on the New York Times because it's the only newspaper that had a decent index. The New York Times prided itself on being the newspaper of record for the whole world. And they published every year a very thick volume of their indexed articles. So I could go to that index. So I pulled the articles for, of course, the nuclear tests. And then I pulled articles on plutonium and so on. So I was just awash in these articles, but I didn't know how many tests there were. Finally, in the government documents room, I came across this little microfish. I don't know if people even know microfish. And here in 1994, the Department of Energy had released for the first time a complete list of all of the tests throughout the country, including the Pacific Islands, and their tonnage, their location, the kind of tests, and the yield. So on the basis of that, I could see there were 86 nuclear tests in Anahuitoc, Bikini, and Johnston Atolls, and the surrounding Pacific Islands. So then I could just backtrack, had the New York Times covered this? And had they covered it? Yeah, I could pull the articles uh, that they did cover and see the ones that they had not covered. What these tests showed is that the nuclear tests were just a fraction of the 1,000, 1,500 tests throughout the world that the U.S. had done, but the, they were 84% of the yield which meant they were the most powerful ones, the unpredictable ones, too unsafe to try on the 48 contiguous states. So they were 
getting the brunt of the explosive force and of course the experiments. So what this did show though was these weapons in just the Pacific Islands and the waters accounted for 8,580 A-bombs that were being tested in 16 years just in the Pacific Islands. So that was 8,000 bombs. That's equivalent about one and a half Hiroshima bombs per day for 16 years in the Pacific. And nobody knew anything about it to speak of. As you were coming across this information, were you aware of who the writers were or were you impressed by what the Times was doing or did you have thoughts about maybe they weren't doing a complete job about it? What was your process at the time of considering these articles? One summer I had spent just reviewing the history of the New York Times based on the available literature and uh, a lot of books that had been written about them and by New York Times people. And the New York Times was unusual ahead of their times in that they developed specialized reporting by science and by military. This was before the war, about in the 30s. And so they had specialized reporters because they were very interested in the international aspect and of course in science. So Lawrence was the whose name came up all the time and there was a lot written about Lawrence just as what a great reporter he was and how special he was and everything. And to be clear, this is William L. Lawrence, the last name is spelled with a U, not the other William Lawrence from the New York Times whose last name was spelled with a W. That's right. They called him Atomic Bill which he loved. But not until much later, after the bomb and after they knew about his involvement with the Manhattan Project. That's right. So basically, once I had the data with those tests, I found that the New York, New York Times reported only 56% of the tests in the Pacific because they were following the government lead. And the interesting thing about even the 56% they did cover Nine of those tests were from Japanese scientists in Tokyo. In other words, the bombs were so powerful, like an earthquake, that they could detect them all over the world, but the Japanese scientists were taking note of it and announcing it. So the Japanese were actually announcing some of these bombs. Now, the other interesting thing is the Americans and the free world and the servicemen working on this, the Pacific Islanders, were all kept in the dark because of nuclear secrecy. They always said national security, of course. But except from the Russians, the big enemy, because they had trawlers right outside the danger zone that were eavesdropping on all of the tests. So the Russians knew what we were doing, but our own people did not. That was pretty disheartening. At what point did you become aware of William L. Lawrence as someone who is a factor in the information flow about things atomic, meaning nuclear, especially in the earliest days when we were first finding out about this after the bombs were dropped in Japan? 
Well, they made a lot of to do about how Lawrence was out of the office, out of the Times office, and handpicked by the Manhattan Project director to tell the story of the development of the bomb for the American people. So they were very proud that they had somebody doing this for them. So we knew that Lawrence was, for this period, you later said 119 days working behind the atomic curtain. And he was able to travel to Oak Ridge, to Hanford, where they were making plutonium, describe all of this. And the Times had him write a 10-part series. The Manhattan Project, General Grove, wanted that released. But it was written for the Army. But the Times ran it, play by play of how all of this was developed. And the Times released it and they gave it free to all of the other papers in the country. And they published it as a little booklet for school children and for adult readers. So here it was, what they call the best propaganda that doesn't look like propaganda. We knew it was written for the Manhattan Project and for General Groves and the Army, but the Times passed it off as news, which it was because Lawrence had inside information and access to these places where the bomb was being developed. They were developing the plutonium, the scientists and so on. However, and the point of the book is still of endearing importance to the whole world, he never mentioned radiation and radioactivity, which is the defining feature that sets it apart from conventional weapons. That's kind of the thrust of the book. And the people who were bearing the brunt of all of this were the Pacific Islanders. This is where the plutonium-laced bombs were all tested. And the Pacific Islanders were significant for another reason. It allowed the U.S. to shift from the delivery system from conventional bombers to missile development. So the nuclear warheads could now be delivered by missiles. And they are being tested by missiles now, still. I have an enduring fascination with points of origin. In other words, if things are this way now, how did they get to be that way? And in examining the information flow about all things nuclear and atomic, all roads lead back to this one man and the writing that he did. First of all, what's wrong as a journalist, as someone who is a professional journalist on the front lines in Vietnam, you were actually a war correspondent. What does it mean for a reporter who is writing under byline to actually be in the pay and the employ of an entity that has a larger interest, in this case, the War Department, the U.S. government, the Manhattan Project? The code of ethics for journalists at the time, today, but back then also, explicitly says no second employment. The most important thing is service to the public. That is your duty. I mean, unless you don't do that, the whole point of being a free press doesn't really mean much. It's like worse than prostitution. You're selling not yourself, but your soul 
your whole reason for being the press is to tell the truth, to inform and educate the people. What they choose to do with it is up to them, but they've got to have the raw material to work with. So the point is, if they didn't know about these 8,000 Hiroshima type bombs going off in the Pacific Islands, which was one and a half bomb per day for 16 years, they were completely blanked out, a dark hole, a black hole in their knowledge of how devastating the, the radiation and the radioactivity were. I know you can't see it, but one of the most devastating pieces of information later on was a, the British Medical Journal, how the deaths of newborn babies and stillborn, the death rate had been going down, down, down until the 50s when you had much better care and sanitation for the newborn. And then with the nuclear testing, there's a hump up, more newborn deaths. And this was a factor that the women in the Pacific Islands were saying, but nobody was paying attention to them. They were having tremendous miscarriages of, it looked like they say a bunch of grapes, you know, and the ones that were born were disfigured physically and mentally disabled. So it had a profound effect. And this started to roll over into the atmosphere. I mean, the tests that were going on in the Pacific radiation reached San Francisco within a week. By the 60s, everyone on the earth had been touched by radiation and radioactivity in some way. Now, they didn't all ingest it and inhale it and get sick from it, but it was kind of absorbed into their bones. So this is a mark that all of us now have of the atomic age. Why do you think that people did not know about or understand radiation, radioactivity? Do you think that was planned? Was it accidental? And going back to the beginning when Lawrence, who is the only person with really inside information, was writing for the Times, and he did not mention radiation or radioactivity. Do you think that was an intentional omission on his part? Was it a blind spot? Was he under orders? What is your best take on how this omission happened? I uh, have no way of knowing, except... It was more than just William Lawrence that hid this fact. For example, there are two recent articles in the New York Times that just go into this a little bit. And what makes this interview so timely is that these Times articles just published in August this year. Both of them happened to mention my book. They were written in August 9th. That's the anniversary, <laughs> by the way. Mm -hmm of Nagasaki. But one, and this kind of illustrates your point. One article carried the headline, the black reporter who exposed a lie about the atomic bomb. And it goes a little bit into the star reporter called Charles Loeb, whose papers, the black newspapers were carrying his articles all over, but he, he was in horror. Hiroshima shortly after the bomb. 
And he said radiation had killed or injured so many of the residents there. And that was a propaganda line that the American government wanted to cover up. And he was there before the censors and the propagandists got there. And he reported that. It quotes my article. It says, the Times sought to ignore this topic of radiation at Hiroshima altogether. Beverly Kiever, a professor of journalism, analyzed the coverage of Hiroshima and reported that out of 132 articles she examined, she could find only one that mentioned radiation. So they were discussing the effects of the bomb in Hiroshima. They were hiding the radiation and the impact on the residents. What the Times didn't say is that that one article I did found was actually a denial by Robert Oppenheimer of a story that had said the radioactivity was going to persist in Hiroshima for 70 years. And the War Department and Groves called on Oppenheimer to smash down that report. Well, the Times hadn't published the original report about the radiation and activity in Hiroshima, but they published Oppenheimer's denial of it. The other article is also very interesting that the Times article did not point out there was another very important reporter who got to Hiroshima before the propagandists and the American censors got there named Wilford Burchette. And he wrote an article for the London Daily Express. I was also a stringer for that paper in Vietnam. He wrote an article a month after Hiroshima called The Atomic Plague. I write this as a warning to the world. And he wrote about the effects of the radiation on the people and how they got sick. Even the doctors, this is the doctors fall as they work and they all fear this, this uh, radiation. So the Times could have also mentioned there were other reporters that countered the US government, but they didn't. There was another article that same day. It was written by the current science writer of the Times this talks about Lawrence's double pay standard of working for the army and getting paid for the times at the same time. Actually, if we're talking about Lawrence, I did the research in General mm -hmm. Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, in his biography, and they had set it up so that it looked like the times was paying Lawrence on an ongoing basis, but the money was provided by the army, by the Manhattan Project. That's news to me. Anyhow, this second article was based on a book called Restricted Data. Have you seen that one? The History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States by Alex Wellerstein, a nuclear historian. The Times says, over the years, reporters clashed vigorously on Mr. Lawrence's atomic reporting. Beverly Deep Kiever, a war correspondent in Vietnam who later taught journalism, denounced the, quote, double pay arrangement between the Times and the federal government as a brazen conflict of interest. So it was very clear that this was a conflict with the 
ethics of journalism. That article also quotes a book that's going to be coming out in April by a fellow named Vincent Kiernan, who's dean at Catholic University and a former reporter. He says that Lawrence supplemented his pay also, besides the Manhattan Project, of writing for the US Surgeon General and later on for Robert Moses, who planned New York City. And the thing I looked at in particular, thanks to the index, was plutonium. Now, the interesting thing about plutonium is all the scientists knew the half-life of plutonium. It was a, an established fact that was, could not be classified secret or anything to do with national security. And it had such a long half-life. It has a half-life of 24,000 years, which means that half of it decays in that length of time. And then that remaining half takes another 24,000. And then the next one and next. In other words, a half a million years of radioactive existence. So you could have just dropped in that little fact, hardcore fact, no implication for national security at every story that mentioned plutonium. And the first plutonium bomb was Nagasaki. So Nagasaki and all of the Pacific Island tests were plutonium-laced bombs. So this was sometimes mentioned in the articles, and sometimes wasn't, but they never mentioned. I pulled 128 articles from the 16-year period, 1945 to 62, during the nuclear testing period and before the Americans and Soviets signed a limited test ban treaty in 62. Of the 128 articles, only one mentioned the half-life 24,000 years of plutonium. 10% mentioned the deadliness or the radiotoxicity of plutonium. None mentioned plutonium in the Pacific nuclear weapons tests where most of it was being detonated. But it did mention the use of plutonium in other countries. By this time, France and England were using plutonium for nuclear power plants and for peaceful uses of plutonium. They mentioned that, but they didn't mention the Pacific Islands. And none of them mentioned the nuclear waste problem, which is another tremendous problem that we have today. Another interesting article that was not in the index, but it was written by the military special reporter, Hanson Baldwin. So the Times had set up specialized reporting for the military and for science. And Baldwin and Lawrence often worked together on some of these stories. Uh, and Baldwin was able to go to Richland, Washington State, which was a new off-growth of Hanford, where plutonium was first produced for all of the bombs. And he called it the world's largest plutonium production plant. And he describes the elaborate safety precautions they take there, but not against plutonium, 
but only against the short-lived iodine-131 radioactive gas. But he didn't mention anything about precautions for plutonium. Well, 37 years later, they had to close up that plant because of health concerns. It was so dangerous. And they now say it's been called perhaps the most contaminated site in the US nuclear weapons complex. So early on, it was not just Lawrence, it was complicity, certainly within the other editors. For example, there was a very famous picture of Oppenheimer and Groves and, and the, a press tour at the Trinity site where they were all given little white booties to put on their shoes to prove to journalists that there was no radiation at the Trinity site. And the Times cut off the white booties in their photo. So the photo editors were complicit. However, Life magazine published a photo of it and Groves asked his driver to just stand up there without the white booties on and let the photographers or the journalists see that it's safe. All right, he did that for 30 minutes and he got tremendously sick later on and he blamed it on, it was on a leukemia. He blamed it on that 30 minute stand up where he did in the Sandless Trinity site. He was doing that less than two months after the Trinity explosion, which was, I believe, July 16. And the Trinity press junket that you're referring to took place on September 9th. And so it was less than two months afterwards that this man was told to stand out there with absolutely no protection. Yes. We'll return to this week's featured interview with Beverly Deep Kiever on her book, News Zero, in just a moment. But first, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, preceded by the Trinity A-bomb test in New Mexico, followed by years of atmospheric bomb tests in the South Pacific. That was the start of what we came to call the Atomic Age. But as you're hearing from today's guest, there is no end in sight to its impact. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters, now including radiation releases from uranium mining, reactors, highly radioactive waste, and accidents, is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet despite the known risks to health and safety, the nuclear industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat, to help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how it got this way, the many brave activists around the world who are fighting back, and how any one of us can take action to try to stop atomic madness. At Nuclear Hot Seat, we're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we vet the information to provide context and continuity you can trust so you can understand the full, ongoing picture. But in order to continue to do that, we need your help. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is where you can now set up a monthly donation of $5.00. 
That's the same of a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. And don't think that's too small an amount to make a difference because it's those $5 donations that sustain this show from month to month. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to help us continue, please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, you have my gratitude. Now here's the continuation of this week's featured interview with Beverly Deep Kiever, author of News Zero, The New York Times, and The Bomb. Do you think that all of the reporters and the editors and all of those people were simply ignorant of the facts of radiation, radioactivity, the poisoning, the dangers that would result? Were they under orders? Was this their own decision? Was it the blind spot? Again, I'm trying to get back to how could so many in unison, in lockstep with each other, almost by general agreement, decide to not say anything about, as you say, the defining characteristic of atomic weapons. I don't know. I just don't know what was going on at that period. I think they were just not in the know. Most of them didn't have the science background. It was a completely new field that opened up and they didn't have much basis for that. The interesting thing by about the 60s though, there were public interest groups that started to come up and lobby for more information. But I didn't see that the press had done anything to try to counter the government secrecy. Sometimes even civil defense workers had to lobby to get information that they needed in order to protect the public in case they were ever called upon in a nuclear attack. So I just don't know. I think that they just were not given enough information. I think the AP did some, had a science writer who did some good stories, I've been told. I didn't see those. But there were journalists who did it, but it it didn't seem to grasp, to sink into the public's awareness until some of the Nevada shots started to get people's attention. And it was a while before, you know, they got alarmed about uh, some of the effects of radioactivity. For example, the farmer's sheep were getting damaged and in the Trinity shot, some of the cattle were injured and the government had suits that they settled very quietly. So they were aware, other people were aware of the danger, but they didn't let those settlements become public. The public didn't know how severe the problem was. Let's get back to your book. You were talking about having to write a dissertation, and it took you 10 years to come up with the dissertation. And it's my presumption that this dissertation either was or turned into the book News Zero. Is that correct? Yes. It was almost as much trouble to get the book published as it was to write it. That was my next question. What were the challenges that you had in getting the book published? I just wrote to publishers all over. You know, they have this book in Writer's Digest. And I went through that 
entry by entry and entry, and every one that looked like a possibility, I set them a perspective. Now, it wasn't a very good perspective in that I didn't have a catchy title. Along the line, after all of these, some of them I didn't even get a rejection slip, just no answer. Some of them they replied and said, thanks, but no thanks. I came up with News Zero, and I came across this publisher who was not listed in Writer's Digest, Common Courage. I knew about this publisher because he had published a book by a very profound activist in Hawaii called Native Daughter. And I'd read the book. It was very, very feisty. So I knew about Common Courage. My first sentence says, well, if you published Hanani K. Trask's book, you should published my book. He had published books by Noam Chomsky and others, and he was very into the whole press coverage story. And he was an excellent editor. He liked to edit. And he would say, with my, took my dissertation, I am not your dissertation committee. And he just whacked that out. Out that came. So I got rid of all of the theoretical stuff you have to put in a dissertation and wrote a kind of journalistic style. And I kind of went back to the Times coverage of radiation. It turns out they were great fans of uh, Madame Curie and they reported about her. Her death, they reported, was because of radioactivity. And 50 years later, her cookbooks even still were radioactive. The interesting thing was in the 20s, they had radium that they painted into watches for the GIs to use. It could glow in the dark in the war. So they, the dial painters were these young women in their teens, and they would put radium in a brush and dip it in the mineral and then put it on the watch and so on. Well, in time, they got what they called radium jaw affected their jaws and they all died horrible deaths and those trials were covered heavily by the times because it was in their circulation area these three dial planing places that were in their circulation area so they covered those they were very sensational trials and the Hearst magazine and newspapers had cartoons about these ghoulish girls that were dying and as they worked in this place. That was kind of the prelude. That was important because they were the first victims of the radiation that were known. And they sort of alerted the government that you had to put in safety precautions. One, so to protect people, but also liability suits they were worried about. And so the most basic standards for all of the scientists working on the bomb were already in place, thanks to these dial painter girls. So the people in the know knew how dangerous it was and how you had to take precautions. But they didn't want that to sink out because, as one of them was quoted as saying, we didn't want to scare the American people out of their boots. Or out of their bombs. Yes, I think that they would have protested much earlier. 
the American people had only one choice in all of this, and that was the 1956 election when Adlai Stevenson was campaigning to ban the bombs, to ban hydrogen bomb testing. And that's when you had profound secrecy by the Eisenhower administration. And those documents were classified. Not all of them were released in 94. A lot of those were released much later. Getting back to your book, it was published by Common Courage Press in 2004. What was the reaction or lack thereof when you got published? And specifically, what was the reaction from the Times? In writing the book, I went to the New York Times and I said, why did you let this happen without this coverage of plutonium and the Pacific Islanders and so on? And their official response was, all of those people are gone. They're gone or passed on. We can't comment as to the decision-making during that earlier period. Remember, we're talking 50 years after the fact. The bombs had, had gone on from in the Pacific from 46 to 62. And here I went in the next millennium. The response was no comment. We, we can't comment. And the reaction to New Zero was more New Zero. I had very, very little reaction. I got no reaction, in fact. So nothing so, from the Times, any other big publications, anybody step in on this? No, not that I was aware of. You know, I called you, I think it was about, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, something like that, because I was at that point using your book as the cornerstone in my investigation of William L. Lawrence for a play I wanted to write. It wasn't done as an interview. It was more a conversation. So I never put it on nuclear hot seat. But at one point I said to you, what was the reaction in the media to your book? And you said, and I'll never forget this. You said, let me put it to you this way. And all this time, you're the first reporter who has ever contacted me. <laughs> now, is that still the case or with this growing visibility of yours? And we'll get to the expanded availability of your book in a moment. But with you being mentioned and being referenced more frequently now, has there been any growing outreach by the media, by reporters, by people with talk shows or whatever, to finding out more from you and having you as a direct source or citing the book in greater detail? No, no, they haven't. In fact, I just recently came across a devastating book that I read cover to cover, but not in one sitting. It was so hard to take. It was called Poisoning the Pacific and how not only the nuclear, but other problems had evolved between the United States and Japan. So many problems lingering from the nuclear age. The waste problem is gonna cost billions and they haven't decided what they're gonna do with all of the nuclear waste that is accumulated. Places like South Carolina and Nevada 
and every single nuclear reactor site in the country because the waste is stored on site and they've got no place to put it. They keep pretending that they do or they will, but it, this problem has not yet been solved. That's right. And, they, and I must say, I think it is a factor in all of the hubbub about climate change in the sense that I think it's now known that the oceans are going to be rising. It's going to wipe out these little Pacific islands that are still radioactive. Bikini Island will not be able to be inhabited for forever, I think. And more important to have the Runite Dome where they used a crater and put in radioactive dirt and supplies and things about 300 feet wide and an eight inch crust of concrete over it. And it's sinking and it's cracking and it's subject to hurricanes and it's gonna be in time covered by the rising seawaters. So all of this is gonna contaminate the oceans as well as what's going on on land. So this is a problem they haven't, I think, even addressed. In fact, some of the failed nuclear plutonium tests were only 800 miles from Honolulu at Johnston Island. And the governor of Hawaii is going to the climate change conference in Glasgow to talk about how we're going to be building wind turbines and solar power and all renewable energy in four decades. But they're not discussing, you know, what's going to happen with the radioactivity all around us. So I, I don't know what they're going to do about all of that. It's going to cost much more than an infrastructure bill that they can't even get going in Washington now. I consider New Zero to be one of the cornerstone books if people are to understand why it is that we don't know about these issues and what exactly those issues are. You've done a remarkable job of tracking down the information and providing footnotes for absolutely everything. It's totally vetted. So the book was published in a trade paperback version in 2004. Now there's an ebook version available. How long has that been out there? Where can people find it? And what do you hope happens to it from this point on? It's been on Kindle for about a year. And I just notice I'm getting maybe 60 cents, 60 cents return every month. So it's not a bestseller now. And I don't think it's going to be a bestseller. But I think with these other two books that are coming out about nuclear secrecy, it's beginning to come out what the government was up to. And there, there may be more attention to it. But these new books are adding so much more information about Lawrence and about nuclear secrecy that I think they're going to be very revealing. I just don't know that they can do that much to roll the cat back, you know. The damage has been done. And in a way, the world is more dangerous in a nuclear sense than when you just had two superpowers or even just China. You get the rogue states, you get terrorist states, they're miniaturizing the nuclear weapons. So, you know, you could carry it around in a backpack in the future, maybe. I don't know. It's becoming a much more 
terrifying moment, which they don't want people to think about. I don't think the politicians want to raise problems for which they have no solutions. And there's no easy, no real solution to some of this. This nuclear waste is going to be there for millennia. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about grandchildren's grandchildren. And you know, it's hard for people to think in those terms and just trying to grapple with COVID. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to share at this time? Thank you very much for keeping even the topic, the nuclear topic, alive. And you're doing it in a way that I think is more accessible to people with radio and podcasts. If you're doing a play, that is often a good, a new mode to get people's attention. You make it more palatable, maybe. I don't know what the play is going to turn out. Where's the play going to be? It's going to be in my computer until I finish writing it. And I promise you that you will be among the first people to get even a rough draft copy of it. So you can see what I've been up to for the last so far six and a half years in writing it. Because sometimes I think that by wrapping scientific and political information in the human experience, and showing what it took for, in the case of my play, this one individual, William L. Lawrence, to, in essence, as a reporter, sell his soul for the prominence and the specialness and this legacy of nuclear, where his legacy is nuclear ignorance as opposed to information. I think that makes it a much more compelling story because it's the story of where we cross the line we shouldn't cross. And what it ultimately means in terms of who we are as a human being. Well, I think that's very apropos now. Now, of course, the problem is that journalism has shrunk in the sense that local news is almost invisible. So instead of bad reporting, we're getting no reported whatsoever. That's the void that we have to fill now. And I think there are some great stories being told but not, not well enough, and maybe not the key stories. It's hard to get people too excited about nuclear waste, <laughs> but it's going to be there for thousands and thousands of years. So thank you for doing this, and thank you for the play, and you're using other mediums to get to people, and this may capture more minds and maybe more, more activists like you. One can only hope, and that's with having tremendous gratitude to those who came before us who saw an issue such as you did and put in the years of work it took to pull together this compelling and in places, I would say, ferocious book, News Zero, that has my recommendation to be on the shelf and be read by every activist on this issue, every activist on the environment, and also reporters who are covering any kind of environmental beat so that they can include this information in their stories or at least understand the context in which some of their reporting is going to have to take place. So with my gratitude to you, for being just about a daily part of my life for the almost seven years that I have been writing this play. I want to thank you, Beverly Deep Kiever, for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. 
It has been my honor. Thank you for your good work and your interest. Best of luck to you and your play and your broadcast. Beverly Deep Kiever. We'll have a link up to her book, News Zero, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 542. I cannot urge you strongly enough to get and read this essential resource. And for the record, the name of my play is Atomic Bill and the Payment Due. It's about New York Times science writer William L. Lawrence, who played such an enormous role in what we don't know about nuclear to this day. It should be in completed draft form by the end of this year and will be published in 2022, hopefully with a production soon to follow. That will make for a very happy new year. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. There are two great videos coming out of the COP26 presentations. One is on no radiation dump in the Pacific, and the other is from Professor and Dr. Ian Fairley on the impact of tritium in the water. We'll have links up to both, along with a link to a petition from NIRS, Nuclear Information Resource Service, about taking nuclear subsidies and bailouts out of the Build Back Better bill. Both will be at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 542. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 9, 2021. If you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up with your first name and an email address for a notification of the latest show as soon as it posts. You'll never risk missing another one. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, a suggestion of someone to interview, or just want to give me an girl, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear information around the world, take a moment, go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for that big red button, follow the prompts, anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, not only what you don't know can hurt you, there's a good chance it already has. That's it, your nuclear wake-up call. Whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.